Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Uh, There was an amusing story in the news recently. It was about the first ever attempted murder on the continent of Antarctica. Okay, the story is about a guy named Sergei Savitsky. Savitsky, I think is how you say his name. And he's a Russian scientist, and he has been deployed to a laboratory in that barren land of Antarctica. And when he gets time off, uh, there's not a whole lot to do in Antarctica, so about the only thing he could do is read. He reads a lot of books, reads a lot of novels. Well, he has a co-worker who loves to torment him. And what his coworker does is he finds out the latest book that, that Sergei is reading, and he reads the ending ahead of time, and then he tells Sergei what the ending is. And it just drives him nuts. Well, uh, one of his most recent books, uh, this coworker blurts out who done it before Sergei gets to the part. So Sergei goes into the kitchen of the lab that he's working at, gets out a knife, and he stabs the guy repeatedly. I'm not making this up. This is in the news. All right. So just a side note here. Um, if you're one of those people who like you've already seen the latest Avengers movie, uh, do not tell the rest of us what the ending is or something like this could happen to you. All right. <laughs> just saying. All right. So th- this guy, this coworker, is recovering and Sergey is now in prison and he's not very apologetic. He's not sorry for what he did. And in fact, if you, you ask him, he'd probably say, I had a right to be angry. I had a right to be angry. Welcome to the first week of a six-part series that we're calling Lies We Tell Ourselves. Lies We Tell Ourselves and the Truths That Set Us Free. I want you to turn with me. If you brought a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And there's an outline in your program you're going to want to fill out as we go along. Now, the first lie that we're considering in this series is the lie that we frequently tell ourselves when we're upset. I have a right to be angry. I have a right to be angry. Anger is a a commonly expressed emotion in our culture today. It's it's regularly on display at sporting events, uh, on blog sites, in grocery lines, while talking to uh, customer service reps on the phone, right? When stuck in traffic, Uh, in arguments between parents and their kids on the golf course. Anger is everywhere. Anger is is everywhere. Gallup did a worldwide poll last year, and they discovered that 22% of the respondents said that they were presently angry. Angry, 22%. Gallup says it's it's the highest number. The number keeps growing from year to year. It's the highest number they've had percentage-wise since they started taking that poll back in 2006. Well, the Apostle Paul addresses the problem of anger at length in the last half of Ephesians chapter 4. Now, earlier in the chapter, Paul says that once we surrender our lives to Jesus, okay, when when we surrender our lives to Jesus, he begins to dramatically change our behavior. So when Christ comes to live on the inside, our external, our outside, outward behaviors begin to change. And Paul uses an interesting analogy for these behavioral changes. He says it's like changing clothes. So it's like taking off dirty old clothes, those are the old behaviors, and putting on clean, new, fresh clothes. 
See, imagine this. Imagine that you're working out in the yard all day. And so you've been mowing the lawn and you've been planting flowers and you've been spreading mulch and you come in and you're exhausted and you're filthy. And so you, you strip off all those grungy clothes and you leave them in a pile in your bedroom and you step into the shower and you take a nice, warm, relaxing, refreshing shower. And when you step out, you feel like a new person. And so what do you do? You, you reach over to that pile of dirty clothes and you begin to pick them up one at a time and put them back on, starting with the muddy socks. You, you do that? Of course you don't. You know, you're a clean person. You want clean clothes to go on the clean, clean person. And that has been Paul's argument in the first half of Ephesians 4. When we surrender our lives to Christ, when we become new people, our outward behaviors need to change. And, and so Paul begins to describe some of the old behavior, some of the dirty clothes that need to come off. So if you've got your Bible open to Ephesians 4, we're going to begin at verse 25. Paul says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. Okay, take off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Let's stop there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. So what is the first old behavior that has to come off according to the verse we just read. Call it out. What is it? Falsehood. In other words, lies. Okay, lies, which is the topic of our six-week series here. Now, Paul specifically says in the, in the verse I just read that we're to stop lying to each other, but we're going to take that truth and we're going to apply it to, to our lives. We, we have to stop lying to ourselves, Stop lying to ourselves. And the first lie that we're looking at, as I've already said, has to do with anger. It's when, when we say to ourselves, I, I have a right to be angry. So today we're going to look at this lie about anger. We're going to contrast this lie with six truths about, about anger that we're going to find in Ephesians chapter 4. So six truths about anger. By the way, if you haven't taken your outline out yet and you see the person next to you not having taken it out, you might want to bump them, hand them a pen and say, you're going to need this. Okay, but don't become angry. All right. Come on, everyone. All right. Number one, six truths about anger. First one is that anger is a warning light. Anger is a warning light. Now, I want you to take a look at the first half of the next verse. We're up to verse 26. Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. Now, the way he says it infers that it's possible, listen, it's possible to be angry and not sin. It's possible to be angry in a good sense of the word. And, and, and we know that to be true in Scripture because the, the Bible says repeatedly that God is a God who gets angry, right? So God gets, ang God gets angry at social injustice, you know, God gets angry at wicked behavior. God gets angry at the worship of false gods. So if God gets angry, if he has justifiable cause to get angry, I guess we can assume that on occasion we might have a righteous cause over which we can get angry about, right? But that's rarely the case, is it? Isn't it? You know, most often our anger is, is for a, a selfish or for a vengeful or for, you know, even a foolish cause. Which is why Paul says here, you know, in your anger, do not sin. See, anger is like the, a warning light. It, it, it says, 
Something's wrong, it needs your attention, and if you don't get it fixed, something even worse could happen here. It's like the, like the flashing light on my dashboard that comes on when, when I'm low on fuel. You know, I'm driving my Honda Pilot, and boom, the light comes on. You know, low on fuel. So you've got to do something about this. You've got to stop and get gas, or you may be stranded on the side of the road. And what, what if I told you, you know, that little light, it just bugged me. So what I did is I took my car to the Honda dealer in town, and I had them disconnect the fuel light. See, I'm doing much better now. You say, what a stupid thing to do. Okay, that, that light's telling you, again, something's wrong. Something needs your attention. There's a problem that needs to be fixed. So when the anger light comes on in our lives, it's, it's, it's telling us that this could lead to some serious sin. So look beneath the surface. What could possibly be behind this anger? You know, psych- psychologists, many psychologists refer to anger as a secondary emotion. A secondary emotion, meaning there's a primary cause behind this secondary emotion. Say, like what? Let me give you three things that may be behind your anger. So whenever you're angry, you begin to look, when the anger light is flashing, you begin begin to look for one of these three things. First one is hurt. Okay, I'm angry because I'm hurt. And that hurt may be physical pain, like a stubbed toe or a pinched nerve makes me angry. Uh, the hurt may be emotional or relational, relational pain. You know, my girlfriend broke up with me or uh, my boss verbally abused me. My friend betrayed me. My wife criticized my driving. It's hypothetical. I know that never happens to anybody. But, you know, if it did, you, you know, you, you would be hurt and you might strike out in anger. My family loves to tell the story of uh, the time we were on a vacation together and my kids were grown by this time, it's a few years ago, and so my two daughters were married, their husbands were with us on this family vacation, and one night we decided to play a game of charades together, and it was my turn to act something out, and I was really into it, and I was flailing with my arms, acting this thing out, and as my arms waved around, I struck a bronze statue that was on a was on a table there, and it punctured my arm, and blood began to spurt out. So I grabbed my arm like this, and I said, somebody get me a cold compress. And my family began to laugh. I mean, they, they, they laughed for one because it was a self-inflicted wound. You know, they thought that was hilarious. And I was flailing and boom, I did it to myself. And they were secondly laughing because who talks like that? Because nobody says cold compress anymore, dad. And so they're laughing on the floor and I'm hopping mad. Why am I mad? I'm mad, first of all, because my arm hurts from the puncture wound, and secondly, because my ego hurts from my family's derisive laughter. So so when you're angry, first thing to look for is hurt. Is there a hurt behind this anger? Second thing you might want to look for, look for frustration. Something is not going your way. Okay, the traffic is stalled, and you're late for work. Or you're halfway through mowing your lawn and the mower runs out of gas and you got no more gas in your gas can. Your kids won't do what you tell them to do. You're typing up something important on your laptop and your finger strikes the wrong button and boom, your document disappears into cyberspace. Frustration. Now, Now, I've described some 
harmless frustrations, but sometimes we face some really significant frustration. You've been out of work for six months and you still can't find a job. Or you've got a problem with debilitating migraine headaches and the doctors don't seem to come up with a plan for dealing with them. You've been using an online dating service and haven't been able to come up with a good match yet. You're frustrated. Anytime something doesn't go the way we want it to go, we're liable to get frustrated. And frustration often manifests itself in anger. By, by the way, if you are at least a little bit of a perfectionist, you are highly susceptible to frustration, which leads to anger. Why, why do I say that? Because if you're a perfectionist, you want things to be just so. And when things are not just so, when you, when you pay all that money at the butcher for a good cut of meat and then you burn the steak, okay, when, when the dog pees on the carpet two minutes before the guests arrive, when you write what you think is a killer grade A paper and it comes back and you got a B on it, on it, frustration builds up and the anger light begins to blink. Here's a third thing to look for. Look for fear. Fear. Jesus and his disciples, they were out on a boat on the Sea of Galilee one day when a storm came up out of nowhere. I've been on the Sea of Galilee and I can tell you storms do come out of nowhere. And in this in this case, it was a violent storm, and we, we know that it must have been a really fierce squall because a number of Jesus' disciples were seasoned fishermen, and they were scared out of their minds. And so they looked around, where, where is Jesus? They needed some reassurance. And there's Jesus asleep on the back of the boat. I mean, it, it had been a busy, exhausting day of ministry. He had been teaching people and healing people and casting out demons. And so they go to the back of the boat, and with a scolding, angry voice, they say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? And Jesus wakes up, and he asks two questions. He says, why are you so afraid? And secondly, where is your faith? Why, why are you so afraid? You know, you're, you're grumpy paying the bills. You know why? It's because you're fearful that you're going to get to the end of the bills and run out of money. You're not going to have enough to make ends meet. Or you ream out your high school son because he brings the car home 15 minutes late from his date. And the real cause of your anger is that you'd been fearful that he'd been in an accident or something. Is that why he's late? You know, you... you, you, you you stomp out of the room when your parents dare to ask you questions about the friends you're hanging out with. And the real reason is because you're, you're fearful of not having any friends. See, fear is often lurking behind our anger. So the next time you're angry, ask yourself the question, am I hurt? Am I frustrated? Okay, am I fearful? And then take whatever it is, take that to God. Okay, because if you're hurt, God can bring healing. And if you're frustrated, you need to know that God is sovereignly in control of even the details of your life, even the traffic jams of your life. And if you're fearful, you need to know that God is bigger than your fears. Whatever it is you fear, God is, is bigger. So what, what's true about anger? Truth number one, it's a warning light. It'll let you know something else is going on in, in your life. Number two, it becomes a settled disposition. 
Okay, second truth about anger, a settled disposition. I want you to go back to verse 26. I read the first half of the verse to you. Let me read the second half of the verse. It says, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Have you ever gone to bed angry? You know, those of you who, who are married, uh, have you ever, sleeping in the same bed with your spouse, I assume, have you ever been lying on that bed in total silence because you are so steaming mad at each other? I, I, I remember the very first time this happened to Sue and me. Unfortunately, it was not the last time. But the first time it happened, we'd been married like two or three months uh, we were living, working in a suburb of Boston, uh, living in this big old drafty house. We had the second floor of the house, and we'd had an argument. I can't even tell you what the argument was about. It was just before we went to bed. And so we had been lying in the dark side by side for over an hour without speaking to each other, and we both knew the other one was awake. You know what I'm saying? And so finally, I couldn't take it anymore. So I got up and I stomped out of the room. I stomped to the guest room across the hall and I slammed the door. And I was just going to sleep there in the guest room. And when I slammed the door, there was this little plaque, country plaque on the door, and it flew off the door and over the banister and tumbled down the steps. One of those country plaques, bless our home plaques. <laughs> you ever go to bed angry? When you go to bed angry, how do you wake up the next day? You, you wake up rested, refreshed. You pull back the curtains and welcome the sunshine. When you go to bed angry, you wake up angrier, right? Yeah, right. Okay, so Paul says, don't go to bed angry. I quoted a Gallup poll earlier. It says more people identify themselves as angry today than in any previous survey. And it's not just the high percentage of people who are angry that Gallup found disturbing. The survey also concluded, listen, that we're seeing a different kind of anger today than in past surveys. Here's what Gallup says. It's as though our anger has curdled, gone rancid. As a society, we seem not to express it and move on, but to, but to stew in it until at the extremes, it hardens into violence and hate. We're stewing. We're, we're stewing in our anger these days, Gallup says. We're, we're walking around like ticking time bombs, looking for an excuse to explode. And all it takes is for some driver to cut us off in traffic. All it takes for us to, to, you know, to set us off is... Is a sassy comment from one of our kids. Or dirty dishes that our roommate left in the kitchen sink. Or a dropped cell phone call. And, and you know, kaboom, we explode. And, and, and even if we do manage to keep ourselves from exploding, the, the alternative is often to repress our anger, to just keep it inside where that settled disposition becomes depression. Dr. Paul Meyer is a noted psychiatrist, best-selling author. He says that internalized anger is a major contributor to psychological depression. Let me, let me say that again. 
internalized anger is a major contributor to psychological depression. Wow. You feeling really, really depressed? Well, maybe, not always, but maybe there's some unresolved anger that you're holding on to. By the way, Pastor Clayton in the series, he's going to talk about depression next week, give you a fuller picture of that. The Apostle Paul warns us against allowing our anger to become a settled disposition. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Because if you do that, you will eventually explode at others or implode within yourself. Now, now how, how literally are we to apply Paul's counsel here when it comes to being angry at somebody else? Don't let the sun go down. Does that mean that all relational conflicts in your life have to be settled tonight by 10 minutes after 8? Because I checked my weather phone app and that's when the sun's going to set. So you are not allowed to have any relational conflicts after 8.10 tonight. Is that what it means? You know, if it does, and what about the guy who lives in Greenland, you know, where the sun, sun doesn't go down between late May and late July, doesn't go down at all. Did you know that? So does this dude get a free pass? Like, I have a right to be angry. The sun hasn't gone down yet. You know, I think we all understand that, you know, what Paul means by this sundown expression, this figure of speech, is that although it, it might not always be possible for us to resolve every conflict by the end of the day, we better not let our anger linger for long. I mean, even in our marriages, it might, might not always be possible to re resolve the conflict before you go to bed, but you better not let it linger too long. You know, I talk to husbands and wives sometimes who tell me that they've gotten the cold shoulder treatment from their spouse for like three or four days in a row. You know, anger is going to become a settled disposition and then there are going to be harmful consequences for both others and yourself. So let me ask you today, who are you angry with? You know, who stirs up bitterness? Who stirs up resentment? in your heart because if somebody comes to mind when I ask that question the follow-up question is what are you gonna do about this what is your next step gonna be toward resolving that conflict how are you gonna deal with your anger before it becomes a settled disposition in fact it may already be a settled disposition what are you gonna do about it number three third truth about anger an open door okay anger creates an open door. Back to Ephesians 4, we're now, now up to verse 27. I mean, every, every line of today's passage reveals another truth about anger. Verse 27, and do not give the devil a foothold. Do not give the devil a foothold. When we're angry, the devil gets a foot in the door of our lives. And now that that door is cracked open a bit, there's no telling what other wicked behaviors might come through the door. You remember the very first story about anger in the Bible? Okay, it's all the way back in the opening book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 4. You know, it's a story about anger between two brothers, Cain and Abel. And both of these brothers bring offerings to God. And Scripture tells us that Abel's offering is accepted and Cain's offering is refused. Scripture doesn't say why God refused Cain's offering, but judging from the context, from what follows, we might guess it had something to do with Cain's bad attitude. 
Okay, so, so Cain's feelings are hurt. And remember, blinking, warning light, okay, anger, what's behind it could be hurt. In this case, it was hurt, wounded ego. But, but Cain ignored the blinking light, the flashing light. And so God explicitly says to him in Genesis 4, you could read it for yourself sometime, he says, Cain, anger is lurking at your door and its desire is for you. It wants to have you. So what does Cain do? You know, there's, there, there's a door that's cracked open. You know what Cain does? He opens it further. And when he does, what comes through the door? Murder. He kills his brother. Listen, friends, anger opens the door for the devil to enter, and when he comes in, he comes with a bag of dirty tricks. You know, the, the, the Old Testament book of Proverbs says that an angry person, Proverbs 14, verse 17, does foolish things. Later on in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 22, says that an angry person commits many sins. Here, here's an icebreaker for you to try. Next time you're at a party, okay, and you want to get things stirred up, here's an icebreaker question to throw out. What's the stupidest thing you've ever done while angry? What's the stupidest thing you've ever done while angry? And I'll bet you'll get not only some amusing, you will get some hilarious responses. But now what if we put a little twist on that question? How about a not-so-funny version of that question? What's the most harmful thing you, you've ever done while angry? What's the most harmful thing you've ever done while angry? Ever broken your hand punching a wall? Ever destroy uh, what was a really good friendship? Ever say something that got you fired? Ever go out and do something immoral to get back at your spouse who you're, you're mad at? You, you ever get into a fender bender because you're, you're driving angry? You ever turn to an addictive behavior to calm your anger and now you're hooked on that addictive behavior? Anger opens the door to nasty stuff. Alexander the Great was known as the guy who conquered the world, but he couldn't conquer his temper. Alexander had a friend, a boyhood friend, named Cletus. And one day Cletus got drunk at a party and he said some inappropriate things, some embarrassing things about the emperor, and Alexander was enraged. He grabbed a spear from a nearby soldier, and he hurled it at Cletus. Now, his intention was he wanted to scare, scare the daylights out of Cletus, but his spear found its mark, and he killed. He killed his boyhood friend. He experienced great remorse, so much so that he tried to take his own life with the same spear. A bodyguard prevented him from doing so, but he went to his, his bed and he was inconsolable for several days, weeping over the loss of this, this boyhood buddy, Cletus. When, when we get angry, the devil gets a foothold in the door of our lives and bad stuff enters. Just, just a footnote to this point. You may be a victim of an angry person. Won't ask for a show of hands on that. But, but if you are, may I say to you today, get help. Okay, you don't have to continue to put up with that. 
Go to a pastor, go to a counselor, go to your community group leader, go to a trusted friend. Number four, here's a fourth truth about anger. A vicious mouth, it produces a vicious mouth. Go to verse 29. Okay, we should all memorize this verse because we could all put it into practice numerous times every day. Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their, their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. The word for unwholesome here in the original Greek text, in the, in the language of the first century, the word unwholesome was used to describe rotten fruit. So what Paul's saying here, he goes, think about it. You, you wouldn't take a bite out of a rotten apple. You wouldn't take that rotten fruit and put it into your mouth. So don't let any rotten fruit come out of your mouth. Okay, no unwholesome words. This, this past week, I traveled down to North Carolina with uh, three executive pastors from the staff of Christ Community Church. We had gone down there to uh, sort of go to school on a couple of churches that we admire. And so we got together with the staffs of both those churches. And uh, we had a free night. And so we decided to go to a minor league ball game. Don't know if you've heard of the Durham Bulls. Uh, but AAA ball team, pretty good game. And we got wonderful seats. We were like two rows back, first base, sideline. And at the end of every inning, as the ball players ran off the field, whoever had the ball would toss it in the stands. And, you know, it, it, they were typically looking for some kid with a glove and throw it to the kid, and he'd catch the ball. And there's a guy sitting in front of us who wanted a ball. Now, he's a big, burly, like 35-year-old guy, a, a thick beard, and he's getting more and more aggravated that they're not throwing the ball to him. They're throwing him to these kids. And so when one more ball goes to a, a little boy with a baseball mitt, this dude calls out to the player. He goes, you guys never throw to an adult. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm sitting next to Pastor Clayton, and I look at Pat, and we're both like, we cannot keep looking at each other because we're going to burst out laughing. We're just trying to keep it in, and we're going to keep it in because we're afraid the dude's going to turn around and smack us in the face if we don't. Yeah, but how ironic. Here he is, he's saying, you know, that he's an adult, but he's not behaving. The words coming out of his mouth are not adult words. They're the words of a whiny kindergartner. So when we get angry, rotten fruit comes out of our mouths. <laughs> now, sometimes it's just, it's just foolish stuff that makes us look like idiots. It's just ridiculous. Other times, it's, it's vicious words that hurt people. You know, when we were little kids on the playground, we used to say that taunt, someone, some mean person would call us a name, and we'd say what? Sticks and stones will break my bones, but... Names will never hurt me. Words, you know, you can't hurt me. That is so not true. Words can hurt people. Words can damage relationships. You know, a week or so ago, I was in a staff meeting one morning, and we were having a heated discussion about something, and I was irritated with one of the staff guys who made a comment, and I wanted to correct it, but I corrected it in a, a gnarly sort of way. And the, the meeting ended 
And we went our separate ways. And by the middle of the afternoon, I knew that I had to repair a damaged relationship. So I had to call him back into the office and say, gosh, I'm really sorry. You know, it, it really came out the way I didn't want it to come out. It was kind of a nasty way to put it. And because this guy works on a church staff, he was obligated to forgive me. When we're angry, we say things we regret, don't we? You know, vicious things come out of our mouths, which is why the writer of Proverbs says, Proverbs 15, verse 1, that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. See, a harsh word. A vicious word just escalates the anger. It's like pouring kerosene on a fire. It just burns all the more. So if you find yourself getting angry, then lower your voice. Speak calmly. Don't use profanity. Get it? Good. Number five. Here's a fifth truth about anger. We get a grieved coach, a grieved coach. Now we're up to verse 30 of Ephesians 4. And Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you play competitive tennis. Okay, now this is going to take a lot of imagination on my part because I'm a lousy tennis player. But in your case, you've got a personal coach. Okay, and he works with you on every aspect of your game. So you get to be a pretty good tennis player, and you decide, you and your coach decide you're going to enter a tournament. So in your very first game, of your, your, you know, your, your opening match, you're playing pretty good. Uh, but then a call goes against you, bad call by a line judge. I mean, you just smoked the other guy with a serve, and you thought it was in, and the line judge calls it out. And it bugs you. It really bugs you. And you begin to ruminate on that, okay? Yeah, you got to pick John McEnroe for that shot, right? You begin to ruminate on that. And suddenly, what happens? Everything your coach has taught you goes out the window, right? And so you lose the game, you lose the set, you lose the match. And afterward, you're walking off the court, and your eyes meet the eyes of your coach, and he looks so disappointed. And you know, he's not disappointed because you you lost. If you had played your best and lost, he would be cool with that. It's the fact that you didn't play your best. It's the fact that once you got angry, everything he had drilled into you was forgotten. If you're a Christ follower, your life coach is the Holy Spirit. Your life coach is the Holy Spirit. He has been working with you for some time. Even before, listen, even before you surrendered your life to Jesus, it was the Holy Spirit, according to the Bible, who made you aware of your sin and the fact that your sin had disconnected you from a relationship with a holy God. It it was the Holy Spirit who helped you understand who Jesus is and what he did on the cross that he died to pay the penalty for your sin. The Holy Spirit turned the lights on you, began to understand it. It was the Holy Spirit who humbled you so that you could pray one day, oh Lord Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I want you to be the Savior and the King of my life. And then it was the Holy Spirit who came to live on the inside, who sealed, as Paul says here, sealed your redemption, your salvation. 
And now, now it's the Holy Spirit who is determined to make you more and more and more like Jesus. Did you know that's his goal in your life? It's the Holy Spirit who shows you what behaviors are old and dirty, they're clothes that need to come off, and which behaviors are godly and they're good and you need to put them on. It's the Holy Spirit who inspired this book, and when you pick it up, he illuminates its pages so you understand what you're reading, and he helps you apply it in a practical way to your life. He is a wonderful coach. He's a wonderful coach. When, when I was down in, in North Carolina this last week, one of the senior pastors that I met up with, uh, a couple churches we visited, one of the senior pastors played in the NFL for seven years. He was six years with the Indianapolis Coats. Uh, Derwin Gray is his name. And Derwin was showing me around his office, and he had a picture there. He was proud of a picture of him with one of his coaches. Uh, he said, I, I love this guy. He said, this guy was like a second dad to me. When, when he died, I cried for three days. Big, early NFL player. I cried for three days when my coach died. He said he had such a huge impact on my life. Listen to me. If you're a Christ follower, that's what our relationship with the Holy Spirit should be like. I mean, he's, he's the best mentor we'll ever have. So when we get angry and lose it, when we get angry and we allow it to linger so that it becomes a settled disposition, it becomes resentment, it becomes bitterness towards somebody in our lives. When we get angry and we open the door and the devil and all his bad behaviors come in, when we get angry and vicious words spew out of our mouths, the Holy Spirit is grieved. The Holy Spirit is grieved. The Holy Spirit is grieved. I mean, the Holy Spirit watches as everything that he's taught us goes out the window. And, and even though, yes, we can be forgiven if we'll finally come to our senses and we'll confess our anger, God will forgive us. But the Holy Spirit knows that the recovery is going to be long and hard and painful to make up the ground we just lost. So Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Sixth, final truth about anger has to do with a compassionate Savior. You know, I love the way that Paul concludes Ephesians 4. Look at verses 31 and 32. He says, so, okay, summary, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Okay, those, those are the old, dirty clothes that need to come off. What about the new clothes that need to be put on? Keep reading. Next verse. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. So, what's a person supposed to do with their anger? Okay, you're angry. What are you supposed to do with it? I've got a friend who spent a number of years living down in Bolivia. He was helping to start churches down there. And he says in his village, his town, and I suspect this is probably true across the country, there's a, a carnival week that is celebrated every year. And on one day of the, the carnival, they, they spawn water wars 
Okay, it's a, it's a water day. It's a day for getting where everybody gets everybody else wet. And, and it's sort of a way to let loose of pent-up anger and frustration and aggression and so on. So, uh, you know, people got water balloons, people got super soakers, people got buckets of water. He said, no lie, he said, you know, you come to an intersection that day and cars stop and drivers jump out with super soakers and they just nail each other. He said, it's hilarious. He said he, he was, well, on one of these occasions, one of these water fight days, he said, I was leaning out the window of my second floor apartment. I had a, a grocery, uh, excuse me, a garbage bag full of water. I was about to drop it on a group of teenage girls that were on the sidewalk below me. And just as I'm about to release it, the little old lady who lives in the floor above me leans out and dumps a bucket of cold water on me. Just nails me, you know? And I'm thinking to myself, what a novel way to deal with pent-up anger and aggression. Right? Just let's set aside one day a week and we'll get each other soaking wet. Does that work? Well, it probably works with, you know, minor aggressions and whatever. But serious anger? Serious anger? I don't think so. So what works? Jesus works. How How does Jesus help you with your anger? I'll tell you what, what Jesus does. He responds to your, to my offenses. Instead of with anger, he responds responds with compassion. You know, he lays down his life on the cross to take the penalty that our sins, our sinful behaviors, our selfishness, our offensive behaviors, he, he takes the penalty that they deserve. They deserve death, and he dies in our place, and he rises from the dead, and he offers He offers forgiveness and new life to anyone who will surrender to him. So the things in our lives that should make him angry, righteously so, instead of getting angry, he exhibits grace. And so when the day comes that you surrender your life to him, it's it's a sea change, or it ought to be a sea change for us. When, when we get angry, we need to remind ourselves that we should have been on the receiving end of God's righteous anger, and instead what we got was, well, we got compassion, we got grace. And it's only the person who's been forgiven like that, it's only the person who knows that they deserve the anger of God and got compassion in its place. It's only that kind of a person who can turn it around and offer compassion and grace and understanding to someone that they're angry with. Let's pray. As we bow before Almighty God, I want you to take a look at your own anger. Maybe there's some anger in your life right now. Is it because of hurt? Or is it because of frustration? Is it because of fear? You know, take it back to its source. The, Anger light is flashing. It's a warning. Something else is going on. You know, if there's unresolved anger, if you've, you've been going to bed on anger because you're, you're, you're just picking mad at your boss or your spouse or your kids or a friend or the neighbor whose dog doesn't stop barking in the middle of the night, you know, whatever it is, just make up your mind that with God's help, you're going to bring resolution to this conflict. You're not going to let the anger go unabated.
If sinful behaviors or vicious words come out of your, 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 your mouth as a result of your anger, have you given the devil a foothold? And just confess that to the Lord right now and say, only you could set me free. Only you can undo the damage I've done. Have you grieved your coach? The Holy Spirit is your life coach. Is he sad over the way that you're dealing with anger in your life? Just right now, just tell him, oh, Holy Spirit of God, you have done so much for me. I'm so sorry. I, I want to respond to your promptings in a positive way. And if, you, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, okay, you're, you're always going to have a hard time with anger until you come to the place where you recognize that Jesus in his compassion turned aside from righteous anger toward you and instead laid down his life on a cross. And when you become overwhelmed by the amazing grace of God, only then will you begin to forgive people and deal with your anger in a God-honoring way. Lord God, thank you for the practicality of your word. A short passage of scripture where every line was pregnant with meaning for us. Help us now apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.